This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for Thursday, July 29th, 2021. This week's Intego Mac Podcast security headlines include Apple does a quick turnaround on patches for a mysterious exploit affecting all its operating systems. Be sure to check software update because, as we noticed, Apple may not notify you right away. We've got a short explainer on how vulnerability brokers operate, plus a look at some free choices in secure email services. Now, here are the hosts of the Indigo Mac podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Indigo's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm okay. You seem to be in a good mood from our pre-show discussion here. Are you in a good mood because Apple seems to have perhaps patched the vulnerability that Pegasus was using to attack all these famous people? Well, maybe that's what Apple patched. Okay, so we have to explain, first of all, let's, let's back up just a little bit. So last week we mentioned on the show that macOS 11.5 was not quite out yet. They had released patches for iOS and tvOS, but not everything. And so now we finally do have not only macOS 11.5, which came out right after we recorded, but we Of course, like just a few hours after we recorded, every time. Of course, that's the way that this stuff works. But we also now have macOS 11.5.1, as well as iOS and iPadOS 14.7.1. These updates just came out on Monday of this week, and they fixed one vulnerability, or at least that's all that Apple is telling us that they fixed, because every once in a while, Apple will go back and revise that later and add a couple of things that were fixed. But they say that this was a memory corruption issue that was addressed with improved memory handling. And here's the impact. They say an application may be able to execute arbitrary code with kernel privileges. Apple is aware of a report that this issue may have been actively exploited. So that means this was a zero-day vulnerability, and it may possibly be something related to Pegasus. We don't know that for sure, but that is a possibility. Okay, I want you to translate arbitrary code and blah, blah, blah. Okay, okay. Arbitrary code means that an attacker can execute code, or in other words, run... Uh, you could think of it like running an app on your device. They could do something on your device that they shouldn't be able to run on your device. So arbitrary makes it sound like it's almost at random, but that's not what it is. This is like a waffle word. Right. It's not random. Usually when they talk about executing arbitrary code, they mean like any code as decided upon by an attacker. Okay. And they say with kernel privileges, and that's important because that means they can get super administrative access to your device. That means they have the same level of access as the operating system has itself. So anything the operating system can theoretically do, now the bad guys can do. And that's really bad. So as people in this line of work say, you can get root. Exactly, right. So if you ever hear that term, get root, yeah, that's what they're talking about. Root comes from the the Unix underpinnings of macOS and iOS Apple built macOS and iOS on top of a Unix operating system, which is, you've heard of Linux, and Linux is a, a Unix-like operating system, and so macOS is also a Unix-like operating system. It has some of the same guts. Do hackers drink root beer? 
Of course. Well, of course they drink root beer. Two hackers walked into a bar. Can I have a root beer? I don't know. Think of the rest of the joke. I think there's a joke there, but I'm not good at comedy. I want to talk about these updates and the fact that, well, I didn't get notifications on any of my devices. I saw when this came out on Twitter and I saw zero day and I updated my phone and I totally forgot to look at my iPad. And just before the show, we were talking to my iPad Pro. So we're Wednesday. This is two days after it was released. It was only when I went into settings, general software update that I could see an update available. On my Mac, I went to the software update pane of system preferences and it said, you have Mac OS Big Sur 11.5, you're up to date. So I pressed Command-R, which reloads the software update, and then it said, here's an update. And I find this a little bit disturbing. Two reasons. One is that we don't get notifications for something this urgent. And the second is on the Mac, it tells you you're up to date. Most people would just close it at that point and wouldn't think of reloading it again to see if there's an update available. Right. That's especially a big problem if it tells you you're up to date and you're not, especially when there's recently been patched something that is a, you know, a major important vulnerability that everyone really should be patching as soon as possible. Well, hey, arbitrary code with kernel privileges. I mean, dude, that is serious. It really is. I know you're kind of joking about how funny the term sounds, but well, no, that's about as serious as it gets, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Another thing that's interesting about this, sometimes they will say in limited targeted attacks or something like that, they don't actually say that in this case. So it may be something in this particular case, it may be something that was used more widely than that. So yeah, definitely a big deal and definitely something that people should be patching right away. And so why <laughs> why are people not getting notifications on their device? I, I by the way, had the same experience uh, none of my devices got gave me any kind of notification that there was an update available. I only knew that there was an update because I, you know, followed these circles and I, I know what's going on in this in the Apple security community. Okay, we were discussing before the show about when these vulnerabilities are found and how they're bought and sold. And we've mentioned many times that there are white hat hackers. Those are the good guys. They're like Gandalf. So they'll contact vendors, you know, companies like Apple, to give them the vulnerabilities and hopefully get some money from the bug bounty. And then there's the black hat hackers. That's like Saruman. They all go to these vulnerability brokers, companies that buy and sell vulnerabilities, some of them with the goal of then going to vendors but others with a goal of selling them to the highest bidder on the dark web for cryptocurrency, right? Yeah, nice Lord of the Rings references there, by the way. So yeah, this is one of those things that gets a little bit dicey. So you've, you've got people who are able to find vulnerabilities, by the way, are brilliant people, because it really takes somebody that really understands how an operating system or, or how an app works. They need to know about how memory works. You really have to have a, a good understanding, generally speaking, in order to find vulnerabilities, especially ones that are going to be worth a lot of money. So these are smart people. Some people will go directly to the vendors you mentioned, if there's, especially if there's a bug bounty program, because that means that in, in Apple's case, if you were to approach Apple and say, hey, I found this really serious bug, then if it qualifies for Apple's bug bounty program, then they might pay out a little bit of, of money for uh, responsibly disclosing that vulnerability to the vendor. It benefits Apple. Certainly Apple's got plenty of money, and so they can certainly afford to give money out to people who are reporting vulnerabilities directly to Apple. 
Now, there's some gray areas um, in terms of vulnerability brokers, because this is now, now you're talking about a third party that will accept your vulnerability, they'll assess it, they'll determine how much it's worth, and then they'll pay you whatever they think that it's worth. Usually they give you kind of a range depending on what type of vulnerability is that you're disclosing, so you have some idea of what you might get for it. Um, but there's there's not really much of a guarantee that you're definitely going to get paid X amount for submitting this kind of vulnerability. They have to verify it first. They can claim that they couldn't verify it for whatever reason. So there's a little bit of risk involved in um, submitting a bug that way. But some of these vulnerability brokers do responsible things. So like, for example, some of these broker companies are run by a security company that will that has endpoint protection software. So they want to know about zero day vulnerabilities so they can protect their customers. So they build in protections into their products. And then they also go to the vendor and say, here you go, vendor, here's, you know, some information. So they will have their own sort of bounty that they're offering because now they're able to protect their customers from zero day attacks, that particular kind of zero day attack. And also they're still doing the right thing and submitting it to the vendor so they can patch it for everybody else. So this is a win-win. And, and that's, I would say that's not so much of a gray area. That, that kind of makes sense to do something like that. Um, especially if you don't like the bug bounty program that a, a company has, or maybe they don't have a bug bounty program then this kind of vulnerability broker makes a lot of sense. Now, there are other vulnerability brokers, though, that are pretty much just black market, where you have no idea who's going to be buying that vulnerability, but because that's what's going on, that's why they're called a, a broker, because they will sell it to the highest bidder. So chances are it's going to be probably a government agency, a nation state, you know, that wants to buy these vulnerabilities for the purpose of doing something like you know, attacking a, an individual's device with Pegasus malware or something like that. They need these vulnerabilities so that they can break into, into devices and have a nice long window before someone else discovers that vulnerability and reports it to the vendor so it can, it'll get patched. They want to be able to use this as long as possible. Now, it's also possible that some of these vulnerability brokers may sell to the NSA. And it could be the, the NSA. And, and you know what? I mean, if, if you're in the U.S. and you trust the NSA, then maybe that's not such a bad thing from your perspective. But let's say that it's um, a, a foreign intelligence agency that you don't trust. Um, it could get sold to them too. So just keep that in mind. It's not all about, you know, you know, helping out your, your own country necessarily, or your own, you know, allies. It could very well be that the vulnerability that you're reporting gets in the hands of, you know, someone who is an enemy to your country or your ideals. Okay. We have new malware, Xloader. What do we know about this so far? Okay. So Xloader, uh, and by the way, this was yet another story that was breaking like as we were <laughs> recording the podcast last week. Xloader is the name that uh, was given to a, a new bit of malware. It's sort of a subset of something that's called Formbook, uh, which is uh, most well known as, as some Windows malware. And we've seen this distributed as Java-based malware. Based on the, the file name that we've seen, it's, it's statement and then some letters and some numbers dot jar. 
So you can imagine that this probably came as an email attachment to somebody. Uh, somebody was trying to attack somebody. They sent them this Java file. That's what a jar file is in the hopes that they had Java actually installed on their machine, which actually most Mac users do not anymore. But if you did and you open this jar file, then your, your PC or your Mac would become infected with this. And so that was the thing is that Xloader is this new variant that now is able to attack Macs too if you happen to have Java installed. It's not something that people need to worry too much about. Chances are, especially if you've got a Mac that you bought within the past couple of years, and unless you remember installing Java, you probably don't have Java installed because it's not a, it's not something that's pre-installed. It hasn't been for many, many years, and it's not likely to be something that you're going to have installed on your Mac. So an interesting number came out, 2.3%. You want to tell us about 2.3%? Yeah, okay. So Twitter just released a report saying that 2.3% of their users have two-factor authentication enabled. So in other words, 97.7% of Twitter users do not have two-factor authentication enabled. But there's some good news because in the period from July to December 2020, the number of people using two-factor authentication increased by 9.1%. Okay, so that's good. So basically it was like 2.2% <laughs> before or something like that. This is a bit ridiculous because two-factor authentication is so easy to use. I appreciate that Twitter is being transparent and giving these numbers. 79.6% of people use SMS-based two-factor authentication. 30.9% use an authorization app. I'm raising my hand. That's me. And 0.5% use a security key. That's all the really paranoid people like Josh. <laughs> so two-factor authentication is something that's so basic. We've talked about this on the show countless times. This is something that you really, any time you have the opportunity to enable two-factor authentication, you should do it. Even if they only offer SMS, and in this case, Twitter in recent years has started offering more options for two-factor authentication, which is good. That's what you want. But even if a company only offers SMS, that's still good. That's still better than not having two-factor at all and just using a password. Yeah. So definitely, if you have a Twitter account, set up two-factor authentication. All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about secure email services. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected in 2021. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection, Net Barrier for powerful inbound and outbound firewall security, Personal Backup will keep your important files safe from ransomware, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Big Sur and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. Intego, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users, made by the Mac security experts. 
So we're going to talk about secure email. Secure email is email that is encrypted and offers two-factor authentication and is private, in some cases is anonymous. I did a bunch of research last week and I looked at three different secure email hosts that have free accounts. Now, I, I do want to point out right away that I think email is important enough that you should pay for it. It's not expensive. It's less than a cup of coffee a month. I know that people want free, Google is free, and there's all other free emails, but if you need a service that's secure, you should not hesitate to pay. Now, however, you can look at these three different services and try out the free accounts and then upgrade if you want. One thing, people who really use a lot of email, they won't be able to get by with the storage available on these free accounts. So the first service I looked at is ProtonMail, based in Switzerland. They're well known for their encryption and also for the fact that they don't store much data, if at all. They delete the logs, they strip IP addresses from emails, etc. Encrypted email is something that you may or may not need. Josh, how often do you use encrypted email? Um, not very often. This is the kind of thing that... You may want to use if maybe you don't need to send somebody an instant message, you know, like if you if you want to message somebody securely, you can use a variety of different apps like Signal, for example, that's a very common one. But sometimes you don't necessarily need like instant feedback and you just want to send somebody a message, uh, it, just good old standard email, but you want to make sure it's a little bit more secure than that. That's where something like ProtonMail or, or one of these other services can come in really handy. Do you remember trying to set up PGP with, I guess it was Claris email or back in the day in the 90s? I remember trying to do this and it was incredibly complicated. What I noticed here in all three services that I'm going to mention, it is just so easy. It's brain dead simple. Yeah, I think we mentioned PGP recently that it originally stood for pretty good privacy. And then there's also something called GPG, which stands for GNU Privacy Guard, which is sort of an open source version of PGP. There is a way to do this. You can set this up on, on your Mac Um and it is based on open standards and all that kind of stuff. So theoretically, anybody can use GPG or, or PGP to send messages to each other. The problem is that, at least on the Mac, this doesn't integrate very well with the Apple Mail app. There is a third-party add-on that you can get. But, you know, it seems like just about every year or every other year, they have to do some major revision and it takes months and months after the new operating system comes out before you can use it because it takes the developers that long to make it compatible with the new version of Mail. And also, there's not really a good way to do this on iOS either. And so uh, these are various reasons why it's nice to, to use a system that's built with security you know, embedded by default. So the way these services work is you compose an email, you enter a passphrase, and you send the email. Now, the person who receives the email, if they're using the same service, they may be able to read the email automatically. If not, they're going to get an email with a link, and they're going to click that link, and they're going to go to, in this case, the ProtonMail website, enter the password, and they'll be able to view the email. In addition, you can choose how long the email is available. Depending on the service, you can choose maybe from one day to 28 days, or in some cases, they just limit it to 28 days. This can be really handy if you are 
if you want to send somebody a message, maybe a private message, maybe you want to include an attachment or something like that, and you only want it to be available for a limited time. So when they get that email, if they haven't opened it within, let's say, 30 days, and then let's say that maybe a year from now, somebody hacks into their email account, they're not going to be able to see what your message included or get whatever the attachment was because that email had a link that now has long since expired. This is a really good reason to set an expiration on these secure messages. Okay, so all three of the services I'm going to talk about either have apps or have web apps. So you log into their website and it looks like an app. ProtonMail is not ideal on iOS because it's kind of tiny. Other than that, the problem is that if you're using this as your only email account, you won't be able to use it other than with the ProtonMail website or with their iOS app. Using the Bridge app on the desktop is okay, but it, it's a little bit complicated to set up. Yeah, that, that is one of these challenges that, as we mentioned with uh, with PGP, that a lot of times it's the initial setup and 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 accessibility of encrypted messaging that um, can be kind of difficult. So that's one of the things that you certainly do want to look for is how easy is this service to use. Now, all of them, um, I, I, I think you mentioned that you can send a message to a recipient who does not use one of these services. So if you are use ProtonMail or one of these others, you can send somebody an email um, and they'll get a message saying that you have received a secure message. And that's where you get, like we were talking about, where you, you have a link that you can click on and that's how you view the message, even if you're not using that secure platform. Um, if if you happen to be emailing with somebody who also has a secure email platform, this and I, well, the same one as you're using, um, then you may not have to go through that extra step of clicking on a link to view the secure message. Okay, the second one I looked at is Tutanota. They're in Germany. Very similar. One advantage is that they have a Mac app. Now, I don't know if this is like a, is it Electron? Is that what they call that development platform that you can use to make cross-platform apps? It's it's not a bad-looking app, so you do have a desktop app as well as the web. The iOS app is a little bit easier to use than ProtonMail. And frankly, the look is a little bit more modern. ProtonMail looks a bit 90s, and Tutanota looks a lot more you know, new. Yeah, one thing that actually does look a little bit more old school is when you get an email, uh, if you're on a non-secure email service um, or a competing service and you get an email from somebody who uses Tutanota, um, the message is um, in basically plain text. It's got some links embedded, but uh, whereas with ProtonMail and the other one that we'll talk about, MailFence, you get a little bit of a graphical interface and you get a button to click on uh, for getting your secure message. And Tutanota's emails are just plain text with links. Um, so it doesn't look quite as nice, but but yes, their their user interface for the service is, is a little bit nicer. Okay, so MailFence is the third one I looked at. It's a Belgian service. Features are pretty similar to ProtonMail and Tutanota. Um, one difference is that in order to set up encryption, you have to set up your own personal key. Now, you could also import a personal key if you already have one, if you know what that means. 
Um, they log IP addresses in some metadata, whereas the others don't. Um, all three of them strip IP addresses from email headers, which is something that Apple's going to start doing um, in the fall with iCloud email. Now, the real advantage I find to MailFence is, first of all, they use a progressive web app rather than having their own mobile or desktop apps. And what this means is that the web page is responsive and it's designed to work on any platform. On top of that, you can use MailFence with your normal uh, email client. You can use it with IMAP, POP, you can send through SMTP. And when you do want to send something encrypted, you can go to their website and you can send a, an email and add a password to it. But you could use this more easily with your standard email client for 99% of your emails and then just switch to their web app when you do want to send something encrypted. Right. And by the way, you mentioned something that's worth bringing up here. Um, I think most people probably don't know that as of right now, um, and, until you know the new operating systems come out, as of right now, if you send an email with the Apple Mail app, your IP address is going to get exposed. Uh, unless you happen to be using a VPN at the time that you send that message, your IP address is actually going to be embedded in the headers of that email. So if the recipient wants to find out your home IP address, they can find that out. Um, generally, that's not too big of a, of a concern, but it could be in some cases. Uh, you may not necessarily want to reveal that information. Um, it, it will at least tell people your IP address. It can often be used to um, get a basic idea of your geolocation, uh, although you know not precise, but it'll often at least reveal the city that you're in, for example. Um, so this is the kind of thing that um, you, you don't want to happen. Um, it's not quite there yet in uh, Apple's mail apps. Um, but interestingly, even though Gmail is not a secure, so it's, it's secure from the perspective that you can log into it, you can set up two-factor authentication, but also Google has access to all of your emails and that's how they can send you advertisements and things related to uh, things that have been um, recently viewed in, in your emails. But Google does, to their credit, they do protect your IP address when you're using the web-based version of Gmail. Um, so if you, uh, and they've been doing this for several years, by the way. So of course, all of the encrypted email services will do the same thing. They'll always protect your IP address when you're using their, their app or their website. Okay, just to briefly go over the conditions for these free accounts, ProtonMail gives you 500 megabytes of storage and up to 150 messages a day. 150 messages for some people might not be enough. If you want more, it's five euros a month. And that gives you five gigs of storage, which for real email, you know, pack rats, that wouldn't be enough. You can go for 24 euros a month to get 20 gigabytes of storage, but th there are always going to be limitations with this kind of service. Tutanota gives you a gigabyte for a free account and a premium account is just one euro a month if you pay for it annually. They have different options for more storage, for additional email aliases, etc. MailFence gives you 500 megabytes for email storage, 500 megabytes for document storage. All three of these have secure document storage as well as email. Some of them have calendars and contacts. MailFence for two euros 50 a month, you get five gigabytes for email, which is pretty good compared to the others. And there are different levels of paid accounts with more storage and more features. Again, if you really need something like this, pay for it. I mean, a euro a month for Tutanota, that's a bargain. And, and by the way, if you're U.S. based, like a lot of our listeners are, a euro is about a dollar and 18 cents. So 
Um, it's it, it roughly compares. So, um, and of course, you can use a credit card or whatever to to pay for for these services. Some of them accept credit cards and PayPal, and one one of them at least accepts cryptocurrencies. And I'm not I don't remember which one. Yeah, and, and of course, um, cryptocurrency is the most uh, generally speaking, it's the most anonymous way of all of those to to pay for your your email. Um, chances are, probably most people listening to this. Um, would be just fine using a credit card or PayPal or something like that. One note, with Tutanota, when you set up a free account, you have to wait 48 hours before you can use it because this is to prevent mass registrations. So if you need something now, you might not pick Tutanota, at least as a paid account. Right, good to know. Also, you mentioned that MailFence supports IMAP, POP, SMTP, which means that you can use it with third-party email clients like Apple's Mail app, you may not necessarily want to do that um, just because, again, you might end up uh, leaking your IP address or or other things like that. So you, you have to be a little bit careful about using a third-party uh, Mail app. But it is nice if you want that feature, if you want to always be able to use Apple Mail and still have the option to, when you want to send a secure message, then you just go to their, their progressive web app and then you can send a message that way. Okay, we have an article on the Intego Max Security blog, three free secure email hosts that protect your data. Until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com. <laughs>